0: Each and every one of you so thankful that you are here gathered with these saints here this morning My wife and I Katie and my girls Olivia and Gabriella are so thankful to be here with you We are thankful for the invitation to be with this church over these next few days studying This all-important topic of choices. I appreciate Surely Tim had a little bit to do with asking me to come here. I value Tim's relationship so greatly I know whenever he was Asked to come work with this church, he was so excited. I get to go work with, with somebody I look up to so much, David Tomley, and I've heard so many good things about this church, the so love that you have, the good work that you're doing in this location, and I'm thankful to be here with you. I don't make any promises as far as the quality of these lessons go, but we did stay in a Holiday and Express last night, so at least we do have, we have that going for us. All kidding aside, I'm so thankful to be here, thankful to the shepherds for the invitation to be here with you this this morning over the next couple of days. Hope that you have a Bible with you and that you will join me in Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, we want to begin reading together in verse 12. Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 12, as Paul stands before Agrippa and gives his testimony concerning how he came to know the Lord Jesus as his Lord and the things that followed after that. I want, I want to notice this particular instance of his witness before Agrippa. Acts chapter 26 and verse 12, I was traveling to Damascus. Paul says, under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priest, King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. And we all fell to the ground and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I asked, "Who are you, Lord?" And the Lord replied, "I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting, but get up and stand on your feet, for I have prepared for you. I have prepared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a sharing among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Verse 19, So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first, and to those in Jerusalem, and in all the region of Judea, and to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. And to do works worthy of repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and were trying to kill me. To this very day I have had help from God. And I stand and testify to both small and great. Saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place. That the Messiah must suffer. And that as the first to rise from the dead. He would proclaim light to our people and to The Certainly we recognize that the conversion of Saul of Tarsus from being a staunch Pharisee, a staunch follower of the law of Moses, even so far to be a persecutor of the church, for him to go from being that person to who we see him being in Acts chapter 26, it is one of the greatest, most drastic changes that we see within all of Scripture. And yet we can understand why this took place. I mean, if the risen Lord stands before you, I mean, that, that carries a bunch of weight, would it not? So we see Paul here recounting his testimony, which he does a number of times throughout the book of the Acts of the Apostles. But it is only here in Acts 26 that we see a particular phrase that is used by the Apostle Paul as he is recounting what takes place. And it is as Jesus speaks to him and here in the text, it says he spoke to him in Aramaic. And he says this, he says, Saul, Saul, why, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You know, for the longest time, as I read through that text, I just kind of glossed over that. I didn't quite know what a goad was, really is what it came down to. I didn't know what a goad was, so I didn't quite understand the the, the weight that is being carried behind what Jesus says at this time. So as I was reading through this text one time, I was like, oh, well, I want to know what a goad is. And Google is your friend, was my friend. I, go, I Googled what a goad was, and... Come to find out, I actually used a goat before. Maybe some of you have as well in past times. If you've ever dealt with cattle or any type of herding animal. Whenever I was younger and living in East Tennessee, my aunt owned a herd of cattle. And I would actually go with her to a stockyard, a stock barn where they would auction off cattle. And I would help her move the cattle throughout the barn. And I, and I actually had a goat. It was just a stick. With an end on it, sometimes it was a pointed end, sometimes it had a paddle, and if they were really feisty in that day, the cows, I had one that had a little bit of electricity to it, give them a little bit of shock to get them going where they need to go. But that's really what all a goat is. A goat is a tool that is used to to push something in the correct direction. If we're talking specifically about these times, a goat would have been used particularly whenever it came to plowing, oxen. That as a farmer had his oxen attached to the yoke, and as he wanted them to go, if they decided to take a break, but it wasn't break time yet, what would he do? He would grab his stick with the, normally it had a blunt end, and the other end would be pointy. And again, if it was a really feisty uh, oxen, it might have a little little piece of metal at the end of a little piece of iron. So that whenever he stuck it in the rear end, it would get a little more motivation to go. It will be like, okay, I really need to go. And if I don't go, well, there's going to be a little pain involved with this process. Therefore, what I see as I read this text, as Jesus says this to Saul, what I see and what I am convinced of is that by Jesus' statement here, what I'm convinced of is that within the life of the Apostle Paul, while he was still Saul of Tarsus, it seems that he was convicted in some way concerning Jesus. And, and to me that makes a lot of sense. And I've wondered about that in the past. How is it that the apostle Paul. Someone who was so knowledgeable about the law. And the prophets. How could he not see Jesus. As being the fulfillment of everything that had been said. Everything that had been written for hundreds. And, and even a couple of th- How could he not get it? Seems to me he didn't want to. Yet there was that constant goading. That you know this makes sense. But no, no, I don't want to. If, if I accept Jesus, that means that everything I know is going to change. Yet it was here on the road to Damascus as the risen Lord stood before Saul of Tarsus that Jesus says, Saul, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of kicking against the goats? Aren't you tired of constantly being conflicted? Aren't you tired of constantly struggling against me, even though it seems maybe there was something about me that makes sense to you? It is at this point within Saul's life that he made the decision to finally fully surrender to Jesus. And you know, i had never given much thought to describing our submitting to Jesus or our obedience to the gospel as being a surrendering on our part. And so I was listening to a podcast, a podcast uh, that is called Not a Shame. Maybe some of you listen to it. It's by the Duck Dynasty crew, the Robertsons. They do this podcast and, and it's quite hilarious and, and it's just a little bit of everything you can think of that, that they involve in this podcast. But Jace, particularly Jace Robertson, the one with the beard, although that's all of them, but... He's the one that wears the beanie and the beard. Actually, that would be Phil as well. But you, you get what I'm saying. One of them, whenever he's relaying different events that have happened in his life, particularly whenever he's talking about someone uh, being baptized into Christ, obeying the gospel, he describes that as a surrendering process. That this woman, she finally surrendered. This man, he finally surrendered to Jesus. And I never thought about that before. But as he made that statement, I was like, hmm, that's interesting. I want to chew on that a little bit. And I did, and I, and I thought about it, and I said, well, what did the scriptures say about that? And while you'll never find, as far as I could see, as I looked, while you'll never find that exact word surrender being used within the biblical text, uh, brethren, I am very much convinced that the concept is there. The idea of surrendering oneself to God and to Jesus, it is found within the New Testament. And it's found within the New Testament because we have to th- just think about the landscape that we live in, the reality that we live in. That God created us to be in fellowship with Him. We go back to the very beginning. That like God created men in His image to, to rule and have dominion with Him on this earth. And yet, what caused a break in that relationship? Was it not sin? Did sin not create a conflict between God and His people? Go back to Adam and Eve, that's exactly what happened. There was a conflict that was created. And from that point on, there has been that conflict. There have been these battles. There have been these struggles between God and the people He has created to be in fellowship with Him. Yeah, we can't be because of our sin. And it isn't until we are ready to make that decision, to make that choice, to give up all of ourselves, and to lay ourselves before God. That that fellowship and that relationship can be restored. Brother, we know that life is full of choices. Every single person here this morning, except maybe the husbands, have already made a choice concerning what you're going to wear at church. We've all made a choice. We all made the choice to get out of bed. We all made a choice what we could eat, what we should eat. We made the choice when we were going to leave the house. There are many choices that we make. Life is built upon choices. Sometimes we make good choices. Sometimes we make bad choices. But there is no choice that carries the importance that does the choice of whether or not we are going to surrender to Jesus. Whether or not we are going to relinquish self in order to lay ourselves at the feet of God so that he may do with us. As he wishes. It is an eternity defining choice. So, as we begin a series on choices, we're going to begin here with the most important choice, looking at the conflicts, the battles, the struggles that are found between God and men. And then we're going to, to see biblical teaching on that from what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8 and the example of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Let's begin very quickly this morning, though, by just drawing the battle lines. What are the battle lines that we find present in this life where the struggle exists, where the conflict rests? What are those battle lines? Let me give you the first one, and it is simply this. It is the battle line of the flesh versus the spirit. Galatians chapter 5 is a very familiar text to us. Even to the youngest among us, as we talk about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, we all know the song well, probably singing it in our heads right now. You're definitely going to sing in a moment whenever we read through the text. But as we look in this text, Galatians 5, particularly verse 17, the Christian Standard Bible, the translation that I use, the CSB, it says this, for the flesh desires, notice this language, what is against the spirit." The flesh desires what is against the spirit. That is conflict language. That is language where there is some kind of battle, there is some kind of struggle, where a, where a round ball is trying to fit through a square, a square hole. It, it just doesn't work. But notice as well that the, the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to one another. That it is just the desires. It is the desires of whether or not we are going to follow, follow what Satan desires for us, the one who, who commands the flesh, or whether we are going to follow the desires of our God who, who is in the Spirit. Who is it that we're going to follow? And that's manifested in just the ways that these things are seen within our lives. And then look at the, the, the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, adultery, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. Brethren, we don't sing songs about those things, do we? We don't teach our little kids songs about those things because those are not things we want present within our lives. Those are manifestations of the evil one. Those things, if they are present within our lives, they simply show that Satan has influence over us. That we have chosen to submit to him. In what we do. But opposed to those things. Remember, the flesh desires what is against the spirit. The spirit desires what is against the flesh. These things are opposed to one another. So what we have here is this list of the works of the flesh. But then opposed to that, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. And we're not going to do that. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Remember that. Crucified the flesh. With its passions and desires, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Brethren, there's a battle going on in this world. And it is a battle of the flesh versus the Spirit. Who is going to have dominion in our lives? But there's also a second battle line, and it is that of lies versus truth. In Romans chapter 1, as the Apostle Paul is laying a foundation for the need for the gospel... And as he is is painting a picture of the righteousness of God, how the righteousness of God on on one hand within God's righteousness is his holiness and the other side is his his wrathful nature against sin that is a cause of his holiness. And the whole reason the gospel is necessary is because of the sins of mankind. And as he begins to talk about the Gentiles, those who are without the law, he doesn't give them any excuse because they should have still known there was a God. They still had a law that they were under, just a natural law. And as we read in Romans chapter 1, and we read about the Gentiles, that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That there is a suppression of truth. And it isn't just a suppression of truth in order to just not live by any kind of truth. Not by any kind of standard, any, anything. Note it is a suppression of truth in order to embrace a lie. That's what's going on here. And here's the lie. There is no God. And if there is no God, then there is no standard by which I must live by. Therefore, I am free to live as I want to live. That is exactly what Satan wants. He wants us to suppress the truth of God being present in our lives and the fact that God has a will for us, which is our holiness and our sanctification. He wants us to suppress that so we might embrace something else. Verse 19, since what can be known about God, the truth, is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, that is, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what He has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. Or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their sens- senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. See, brethren, is isn't just that. Again, it isn't just that we suppress the truth of God in order to embrace nothing. No, it is the suppression of God in order to embrace lies. Lies. Lies that we... That we control our own lives that we know what is best that our desires are are completely okay no matter what they might be that's a lie and that lie is set against the truth and it is a battle that we must fight against in this life which side will we choose to rest upon the side of lies or the side of truth but then what we read in James chapter 3 and verses 13 through 18 is another battle line and that is the battle line of of man's wisdom versus God's wisdom man's wisdom versus God's wisdom a very practical letter is the letter of James and as he and as he sets up this these contrasting elements of man's wisdom versus God's wisdom this is what he says in James 3 and verse 13 but you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart don't boast and deny the truth such wisdom Notice this, does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, he says it's even demonic, for where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. This text makes it painfully obvious that when we choose to rest on the side of man's wisdom, we are going to suffer. We're going to get into all sorts of problems, And, and mind you, these are problems that are completely avoidable. It is completely avoidable to not be engaged in envying and selfish ambition and disorder and every evil practice. And the good news is is that there's another option. We don't have to rest upon man's wisdom, but we can rest upon God's wisdom. That wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. This should not even be a question within our minds as to whose wisdom we are going to lean upon. Brethren, whenever we lean upon our own wisdom, we will fall. And great will be that fall, and miserable will be our lives. We must be willing to choose, choose the wisdom of God. And really, if we're going to boil, boil this down to the most basic terms, we recognize that really what we're talking about here, it's a choice between my will and God's will. <coughs> That's really what this all comes down to, is is a choice between my will and God's will. My will says flesh. My will says lies. My will says my own wisdom. Why? Because that's the world that we live in. We live in a world where flesh is corrupted because of sin. Where the evil one has far too much influence. We live in the world where we are drawn continually towards that which is not of God. That's the world that we live in. Yet if we choose God, if we choose his will within our lives, then we will be led towards the spirit, we'll be led towards truth, we'll be led towards his wisdom. Here's a question we're going to ask time and time again. What will we choose? Which side will we choose? And again, let me remind us that this question, this choice, comes with eternity-defining consequences. Will we dwell etern- eternally in the presence of God, or will we dwell eternally away from Him, completely separated from Him? brother? we have that choice here, whether we're going to dwell in fellowship with God or without Him. And whatever we choose here is what we're going to choose for eternity. These are just some of the battle lines that are drawn, but I hope that we get a good picture of what we're talking about this morning. And I want us to now shift our focus then to Mark chapter 8 and, and recognize what true surrender demands. It isn't just that we choose the Spirit, truth, and God's wisdom, but there's something that has to take place in the process of choosing these things, and, and that is found in Mark chapter 8. I appreciate a good young brother reading that for us at the opening of the assembly just a few moments ago. Here in Mark chapter 8, Jesus gives some of those powerful teaching that can be found within his ministry. Because it does get to the very heart of who we are as people. This is a text where Jesus teaches about choice. About who we will choose to be, who we will choose to serve. Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. The first thing I want to recognize comes from the very first thing that Jesus says If anyone wants to follow after me, if anyone wants to follow after me, what we learn from this is that whenever it comes to following Jesus, what it demands first and foremost is a willingness to follow Jesus, a willingness to surrender to Jesus. We are never going to surrender to that which we don't choose to surrender to. Surrender is a choice. And it's a choice that we have all the power over. If, If we recognize that there is conflict between us and God because of our sin, and if we recognize that that conflict needs to be resolved, then what we have to understand is that that conflict is only going to be resolved when we choose to surrender. Because... Let us be reminded that Jesus is not going to surrender. Jesus recognizes this struggle, and Jesus isn't going to lose the struggle. He's not going to bow out. He's not going to give up. The King of kings and Lord of lords did not leave heaven to come to earth to lose. We have to recognize that. Therefore, if we want resolution from these struggles, from this battle, from this conflict in this life, we have to choose... We have to choose on our side to surrender, to give our lives to Jesus. And that's seen in the the next thing that Jesus says, not only if if anyone wants to to follow after me, if he is willing, if he desires, if he wants to follow after me, the next thing he has to do is he has to deny himself. He has to deny himself. If I'm going to surrender to Jesus, what that means first and foremost, what that demands is that I want to. But secondly, it demands that I deny myself, that I am willing to put away self-centered interest. That I must be willing to lay aside the works of the flesh. I must be willing to lay aside falsehoods. I must be willing to lay aside my own wisdom. That I lay all those things aside And that that I then pick up and embrace the things of God. That I embrace His will for my life. That's a pretty drastic change, would you say? That's that's a pretty drastic thing for us to do. To lay our desires completely aside in order to embrace the desires of God for us. Why would we do that? Why? Why? I would suggest to you that we would do that because we recognize who Jesus is. That it isn't that we are laying aside our desires to allow just anyone to have control over us and what we do, but it is to allow deity to have control over us and everything that we do. That we allow the one again who left heaven to come here for us. That we allow Him. To rule over us, that so we allow the King eternal to rule over us. And what adds even more weight to this is to recognize that Jesus was willing to leave heaven to come here for us, not because we were deserving, but instead we were completely undeserving. Romans 5 tells us that we were enemies of Him, that we were helpless sinners who weren't just ambivalent to God. It's not as if we were just neutral. We weren't Switzerland, that was the neutral country, I think, right? We're not Switzerland. No, we're, we're enemies. Completely against God because of our sin. And because we were enemies, even though we were enemies, I should say, Jesus still came for us. We might say that in a sense, Jesus denied himself in order to choose to aid us when we were helpless and without hope. If Jesus was willing to do that, brethren, how much more should we be willing to How much more should we be willing to deny ourselves in order to embrace his will for us? But it doesn't just stop with denial. That's tough language already. That already is tough language. But what takes us even further is what Jesus says thirdly. That it's not just that we make the decision that we want to follow him. And it's not just that we deny ourselves. But we actually have to take up our cross have to take up our cross and it, it is so so unfortunate that such a statement by jesus when it is read in 2019 doesn't punch us in the gut like it would the people who heard that originally because whenever we think of the cross we as some of some of our songs indicate that for example how deep the father's love as a song about the cross But in speaking about the cross, it is speaking about the love of God. Whenever we think about the cross, we do think about the love of God and and what He did for us on that cross through Jesus, the love being poured out. But we have to recognize that, that the cross to them was not about love. The cross to them was not about hope. The cross to them was about death. Agonizing, painful death. Therefore, for Jesus to say, take up your cross, he's saying you better be willing to die. It isn't just that you deny yourself, but you must be willing to die to self. Which tying this all back in together with the apostle Paul is exactly like what he did. And he said as much later on, Galatians chapter 2 I have I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's why he's willing to say and why he's able to say just a few chapters later what we read earlier from Galatians chapter 5, that those who live by the Spirit must crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires. When we talk about denying self, when we talk about crucifying self, what we're talking about is making a different choice in life. That we no longer live for self in everything that we do, but instead we live for God. And if we're willing to make the choice to choose Jesus, then it's at that point we are actually able to follow Him. Because we're not going to follow Jesus unless we make that choice. We're never going to be able to truly be disciples. Unless we die to ourselves and deny ourselves, unless we have a burning desire to serve Him, we're not going to. Not in the most true and fullest of senses. Now, very quickly, very, very quickly, I want to talk about a man who, walked, who attempted, we'll say, to walk this road that Jesus taught in Matthew, or in Mark chapter 8. In Mark 10 we are well familiar with the young man, the rich young ruler. We know he was, he was young. Matthew tells us so. We can see that he's rich here within this text. And we see in Mark chapter 10 and verse 17 that as Jesus is getting ready to set out on a journey, this man, he comes to Jesus and he kneels before him and he asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Brethren, can I suggest to you right now that he's on the right direction? He's going the right way because he's doing that very first thing. It seems to be that there was a willingness to do whatever Jesus said. There was a willingness in some degree. At least to surrender to Jesus. Because this man could have tried all his life to answer this question by himself. He could have never come to Jesus. He could have just decided within himself. You know what I'm doing what I need to do. I'm fine. But let's at least give him a, a, at least a tiny bit of credit. By at least coming to Jesus and asking the question. Let's just send a little bit of grace in that respect. And as he asks this question, it seems to me things were going good because Jesus says, well, listen, if, if you want to have eternal life, then don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and your mother. And this man's thinking, I'm doing well. That's exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. I am very good at keeping those commandments that from the Ten Commandments specifically that talk about my relationship with man. I'm good at that. I don't murder. I don't commit adultery. I don't steal. I don't bear false witness. I don't defraud. And I do honor my father and my mother. And yet it is here in Mark's account. Mark's gospel alone. That Mark records that as Jesus looked at him. That he loved him. He loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. What a gut punch that must have been. <laughs> that for Jesus to give a a first answer, a preliminary, a preliminary answer, or answer to the question that was he felt good about. I've done this. I, I must be good. I'm, I'm doing the right thing. But for the him to come back, I say actually, let's add on to that. Now we know Jesus was able to give what he's about to say because he knows the heart. He's able to know the heart of men, and what he knew about this man is that this man wasn't going to be able to surrender to Jesus until he was willing to break down a Lord that already was present within his life. This man wasn't willing and wasn't going to be able to surrender to Jesus because he had already surrendered to something else. Well, what is that something else? This is what Jesus says. You like one thing, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. What Jesus is saying is, I appreciate that you have a willingness to come to me, but what I need you to do first is I need you to deny yourself and I need you to take up your cross and then you can come follow me. You take Mark 8, you can put it right over this text and they line up perfectly. What was the man's response? He was dismayed by this demand. And he went away grieving because he had many possessions. This prompts Jesus then to turn around and to look at all these other people. And he says, how hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were astonished at this. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. A couple of things to unpack here is Jesus first saying that anybody who has wealth needs to give it all up and give to the poor in order to follow him. I don't think that's a universal command. I don't say that, And I say that based upon what we see in, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, that he doesn't tell the rich to sell all that you have and give to the poor. But he says to control your wealth with generosity. Don't allow your wealth to control you with greed and pride. So I don't believe that, that is a universal command, what Jesus is saying here. But again, Jesus knows the heart. He knows exactly what is holding this man back. And it was his wealth. He says it's easier for uh, a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I take that quite literally. That Jesus is saying it's easier, which it's not easier. It's impossible. (laughs) A camel can't go through the eye of the needle. Just the same as a rich man cannot enter the kingdom of God. I say that without qualifying anything we're all worried at this point Uh uh-oh we're all rich every single one of us here relative to the rest of the world we are all rich we don't have need except jesus clarifies he says verse 27 with man it is impossible but not with God, because all things are possible with God. That, that leads me to understand that what Jesus is saying is just as it is impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, just as that is, is impossible, so is it impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God when the rich man is trusting in himself or trusting in his riches. Because is that not what this man was doing? Was he not trusting in his riches? Was he not trusting in himself? He had a Lord already. And it was his wealth. Jesus says, you can't come follow me until you surrender the wealth. Until you tear down that idol, tear down that Lord. At that point, you can come follow me. So bringing this home to us, if Jesus were to come to us, and if we said Jesus will follow you wherever you go, what in our lives Would he say, one thing you lack? Go do this, and then you can come follow me. What within our lives is the point where we truly need to deny self and take up our cross? I can't answer that for you. You can't answer that for me. We can only answer that for ourselves. And once we have the answer, it is at that point that we have the choice. God or self? Will we surrender to God or will we continue to fight? Will we continue to battle? Will we continue to struggle? Brethren, will we continue to kick against the goads? That's the question that each of us has to answer. This lesson has laid a foundation that will carry us over the next couple of days as we consider different aspects of this life and the choices that we need to make. Thank you so much for your kind attention. Let's close in a word of prayer, please. Our most loving Heavenly Father, we are so very thankful for this day, which is yours, to come together with this group of people to open up your word, Lord, to consider the greatest choice that we will ever make, you or ourselves. Thank you, God, for your word that lays the choice so clearly before us. May we be a people who humble ourselves before you. May we have a willingness to follow you. May we deny ourselves. May we take up our cross. May we follow you wherever we You tell us to go, Lord. Sometimes that will be a place that we don't want to go. May we go anyways. Sometimes that will be to do things that we don't want to do. Lord, may we do them anyways. God, may you have full dominion and rule over our lives. May we be as clay in your hands. We ask that our hearts would be softened to receive your word that we may be impressed by it, that we may be convicted. God, open us to repentance and to better service to you. Thank you, God, for the opportunities that are before us. May everything be to your honor and glory. It is in Christ we pray. Amen.